Since Christmas is just eight days away, as my daughter keeps reminding me, let me start by asking you to think about a really great gift you have received at some time in your life. Maybe it was something you really needed that came at just the right time. A new pair of shoes or jeans when yours had holes, a phone when yours had been lost or stolen, or a computer when you're heading off to college. Maybe the gift was something that had a lot of meaning. You knew the giver had invested a lot of time in it, a hand-knitted blanket or a homemade Christmas ornament. Maybe you've been the recipient of a gift that you didn't think you needed initially, but later on realized it was a good gift. One Christmas, when we were on a tight budget, we put only the bare necessities on our wish list. So imagine my disappointment when my mom sent us two huge boxes of Christmas decorations for our house. Not a bad idea, except that we were renting a 300-square-foot basement suite. We didn't have room for each other, let alone Christmas decorations. But years later, I was grateful for that gift. My mom knew I don't buy decorations, She was stocking me up. I didn't know it at the time, but in fact, that gift did come in handy. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is telling us about some gifts God has given us, and they are just what we need. Now, he describes those gifts using a metaphor of a Roman soldier preparing for battle. And if you're like me, that's a bit off-putting, cringeworthy perhaps, our contemporary culture knows the atrocities of war. It is not to be glorified. War has also become so politicized it can be challenging when we come to a passage of the Bible like this. Now, I'm not particularly drawn to the image either, but let me give you some context for why Paul might have used it. When Paul wrote these words in roughly 62 AD, much of the known world was under Roman rule. Historians estimate that the average adult would see at least one Roman soldier a day. Now, I lived in Israel for four months, and let me tell you, when you first arrive, it is very alarming and disturbing to see Israeli soldiers walking around everywhere with machine guns. But eventually, that becomes part of the backdrop to everyday life. And the same was true for Paul. Furthermore, remember, he's writing this letter while under house arrest chained to a Roman guard, which he references in verse 20. So even though the soldier would not have been dressed fully for battle with the armor Paul lists in this passage, you can't quite blame him for using the image that was in front of him day in and day out when it so well illustrates what he's trying to say. Now, unfortunately, his point often gets lost in the weeds, From my study this week, it seems an elaborate analysis of each piece of armor and what it represents is not only somewhat arbitrary, but can also distract us from the other key points Paul is making. Instead, the overall purpose of the armor metaphor is to show us, one, that God has given it to us, God has provided it, and two, that it is comprehensive, it is everything we need. Let me say a brief word about each of these. One, God has given us this armor. It's amazing how we sometimes miss this. Even by the phrase armor of God, we really mean God's armor. One pastor observes, this is armor God has forged and furnished. 
We didn't have to make it. It was given to us. We simply put it on. And two, it's comprehensive. It's everything we need to protect us from danger. If anything, that's the use of the specific armor pieces listed. Just like we aren't to pick apart which gift is which part of the body in the metaphor he uses in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, but appreciate the overall point that we're all different and valuable, so too here we aren't to dissect the different pieces of armor, but rather appreciate that the soldier is well protected. Put each of these two points together, and the, Paul, the point Paul is making is that God has given us all the resources we need to be faithful to him. Several years ago, I was in a bit of a hard place. Andy and I had been in the midst of some challenging circumstances, and over time that had begun to take a toll. It wasn't anything big or immoral, but I was struggling. And in particular, I had developed some ways of responding to those challenges that weren't very helpful. This finally came to a head one night when Andy and I had an argument. I told him this morning I was going to give this illustration, and I said, we had a fight. And he said, it was an argument. <laughs> I thought it was a fight, but... Uh... <laughs> I called a friend the next day who knew us both well and who cared deeply for us. She was for both of us. And I asked for her help and wisdom on how to navigate this. We talked for a while. But then she emailed me the next day, and I will never forget her email. She didn't invalidate my emotions, but she also encouraged me to consider what my part might be in this struggle, what my contribution was. And she concluded, I am praying for you. I am confident that you and Andy will work this through. You have all the resources you need to live faithfully through this. Now that's the phrase that stuck with me. Really? I didn't feel like I had all the resources. I felt helpless, discouraged, powerless, trapped in habits and behaviors and patterns of relating. I knew in my head what she said was true, but I didn't really believe it. I decided to give it a try anyway. I asked for prayer. I sought wisdom from others. I sought to change my behavior. Eventually, I found help, strength, perseverance, new ways of relating and interacting. God provided what we needed in ordinary and even miraculous ways. And I am so thankful we are no longer in that place. Now that's the point Paul is making here. God has given us all the resources we need to be faithful to him. We simply need to access them. I don't know what battle you may be facing today. They come in all kinds and forms. It may be a sinful habit you're trying to break. It may be doubt or discouragement. It may be a really difficult circumstance you're walking through or pressure in the workplace from sharing your faith. It may simply be trying to obey God's commands. Whatever it is for you, I want to tell you this morning, God has given you all the resources you need to be faithful to him. If only you would open and enjoy the gifts he has given us. Now, as with any gift, it will re be received better if we really see our need for it. Have you ever seen Extreme Makeover Home Edition? 
you know that before the big reveal of the new home, they have a setup for why this family is so deserving and why this gift would make such a difference in their lives. Verses 10 to 13 are Paul's setup. So let's spend a few minutes looking at why Paul says we need these gifts. Then we'll turn our attention to the gifts themselves. Our reality, our need for these gifts. Paul gives us the reality check before suggesting the gameplay. And the reality check consists of both some bad news and some good news. The first, the bad news. The truth is that human beings are not alone in this world. There's far more wrong in the world than just our own brokenness, and there's plenty of that. We've got the devil's schemes in verse 11, and we've got a whole host of his minions in verse 12. Not flesh and blood, but rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Though they are invisible, they are present nonetheless, Paul says, and they are dangerous. One commentator noted three characteristics of these forces. They are powerful, they are evil, and they are cunning. Powerful. Every title used in verse 12 highlights this. Ruler, authority, powers in this world. They're evil. Power itself isn't so bad. It can be used for good or evil. But these enemies use it destructively. They have intent to harm. They have no conscience. And they are cunning. Verse 11 mentions the devil's schemes or methods. These evil forces thrive on devising ways to, of bringing us down in subtle, unrecognizable ways. Now that's the bad news. But there's also the good news. The good news is that they have already been overcome by God himself. Paul begins in verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That phrase, his mighty power, his mighty strength, was last used by Paul in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, where he's praying that the believers will know God's power. And specifically, the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And in case you missed it, God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Amen. There is no doubt in Paul's mind that while these spiritual forces at work are powerful, evil, and cunning, they are no match for Jesus. But the problem is, the Bible consistently reiterates that we are people who live in between the time of Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. God has overcome the spiritual forces of darkness, but he has not yet established his rule fully on earth. That won't happen until he returns again. Between the time of Jesus' first coming as a baby in a stable and the time of his second coming when he returns and restores this world for good, he's not fully ruling this world. Rather, as verse 13 describes, the days are evil. Satan and his forces are working to undo all the good, all they can of God's good order. Their doom is sure, but their resolve is unyielding. Like the Nazis who continued to send masses of Jewish people to the gas chambers, even after they knew they'd lost the war, 
These powers will not stop fighting until Jesus comes again and destroys them for good. And so, if we want to stand a chance for survival, we must see the situation for what it is. We must neither ignore these realities nor obsess over them, neither underestimating their power nor overestimating it. As C.S. Lewis writes in his insightful book about temptation, The Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite arrows into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, end quote. If we walk around oblivious to our reality that we are regularly being tempted to take one more step towards that which will ultimately destroy us, then we are susceptible to those schemes. We cannot resist what we do not acknowledge. On the other hand, if we walk around obsessing about the spiritual world, envisioning a demon behind every blow of the wind, we may not have the confidence to stand our ground. If we hope to grow at all in our Christian lives, then it's worth asking, which extreme have we tended towards right now? Are we unaware? Do we realize the danger we're in when we travel, when we go to that bar with the coworkers, when we experience recurring conflict with the same person, when we know we're about to say something we shouldn't? when we harbor unforgiveness, when we feel stuck in a habit we can't shake, there are powers at work coaxing us to take one step deeper and deeper into whatever destructive way of life we're headed for. We must stand firm. Or are we so aware that we're afraid? If so, perhaps we're giving the enemy more power than he actually deserves. Paul makes it clear in this passage that even though we may be under attack, we can, if we use the gifts God has given us, still be left standing at the end of the day. Now, how do we do that? I want to highlight just four gifts from our passage today, and we're going to open them one by one. The first gift is the gift of God's power, the Spirit. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. As I said earlier, the power Paul is referencing here is the power that God exerted in raising Jesus back to life after three days of lying in a tomb. Now just think about that for a moment. That is real power. I've been in the same room with people when they have died. And believe me, if I had power to raise them back to life, I would have. Our medical community has come a long way and has much to offer, but they cannot defeat death. But God in Jesus Christ has. This little baby we're celebrating next week has drop-kicked death. He has dealt death its final blow. And if you have ever felt the sting of death or seen a family ripped apart by the loss of a loved one, you know why I get so excited about this. Have you ever noticed how many Christmas carols talk about Jesus overcoming death? I mean, we're celebrating a birth here. 
And nearly every song has some element of how Jesus has overcome death. Here's just two. Hark the herald angels sing. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Now that's something to sing about every month of the year. God in Jesus has power over death. But there's more. That same power is available to us because God's spirit lives in us. Romans 8, 11. But we must access it. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesians in 1.19, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. And in 3.16, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives is power. So access it. Or as Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the spirit. The first step in gaining some victory over whatever we are facing is to realize we are powerless in and of ourselves. We're dependent on God for help. And as we depend on him, we will begin to embody the traits Paul lists here. Truth, righteousness, faith, proclaiming peace to others, confident and grateful in our salvation. But there's another gift from God that we're to open. It's the gift of God's people or the church, you all. Every single verb used here, both the imperatives and the participles, are you plural, not you singular. You, church in Ephesus, be strong in the Lord. You, followers of Jesus in Turkey, put on the armor of God. You, city church community, stand firm against The image Paul wants us to have isn't one isolated soldier in armor, but rather a rank of soldiers working together to ward off an enemy. Each Roman legion had roughly 6,000 soldiers in it. They had a reputation for being invincible. They lined up standing shoulder to shoulder. When they moved, they would put their shields above them and move in turtle formation, protected by their shields. Those same shields were used when they lined up for battle. The first row would put their shields out front. The second row would put their shields up above their heads. So as a unit, they were virtually invulnerable to any attack by flaming arrows, common weapon at the time. They also dipped their leather shields in water before battle to extinguish the flames, as Paul describes in verse 16. The point is, we're to do this together. Now that changes everything. That makes it much more doable. Everything in this passage is intended to have a plural application. So when Paul says, put on the belt of truth, he is simply reiterating what he said in Ephesians 4.25, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. If we're struggling with something, we might benefit from asking a friend for wisdom. Take the shield of faith. I don't know about you, but I'm in trouble if I have to carry that baby alone. I find people who have the gift of faith, and I surround myself with them because they inspire my confidence in God. 
Here's a few more examples. Find someone who is facing difficult circumstances with character, grace, and strength, and you will be encouraged. If you're a man struggling with sexual temptation, we have a group of men who are committed to living with integrity, and they help one another on the journey. We had a room full of people last week, all grieving the loss of a loved one, and they shared each other's hurts, comforting one another by realizing they are not alone. In each one of these examples, we cannot carry another's burden for someone but we can carry it with them. We can lighten the load, and it is beautiful. See, we are not one new person. We are one new people. We are in this together. If you have not yet unwrapped the gift of God's people in your life, what are you waiting for? There will be lots of opportunities in the coming weeks in the new year to take your next step towards this kind of community, and I hope you will. But wait, there's another gift. The gift of God's word or the Bible. Verse 17, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Did you notice that this is the only offensive weapon listed? I think we can say we all know the power of words. Sometimes, particularly if they have been harsh words, we can still hear them rattling around in our heads days after they were spoken. If that is the power of human words, how much more the power of God's words, inspired and then animated by his spirit? Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even into dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And frankly, this is one reason why we don't want to read it. We don't want to be cut to the heart. But the Bible isn't just effective in convicting us of sin. It's also effective in keeping us from sin. This is how Jesus stood firm against the devil in Matthew 4 and resisted temptation. But it should be said, Jesus didn't just flip through the Torah and put his finger on a spot when he encountered temptation. Because he meditated on it regularly, he was able to draw on it in his time of need. We cannot get out what we do not take in. Now, before you get too discouraged... Remember, I said each one of these applications is communal. If you're struggling to read the Bible yourself, it still counts when you do it with others. Listening to a sermon, if the teacher is doing their job and you're doing your job listening, counts. Discussing a Bible text with your growth group, if the leader is doing their job, counts. I know a pastor who decided to meet with friends several mornings a week, just so he would make sure he took time to pray and read his Bible because he found he wasn't doing it alone. Like exercise, if you need a buddy to read the Bible, find one. There are plenty of people who need help with that. We all do. If Now, if time's not the issue and you simply find the Bible too hard to understand, I want to invite you to join Rachel Ootman and myself each Sunday in January, as John has mentioned, for this How to Read the Bible class. It will give you a good foundation of how to engage meaningfully with the Bible. 
The Bible is a rich treasure and resource. However you choose to do it, I want to encourage you to keep taking it in. There's one final gift I want us to see in this passage. The gift of prayer by the Spirit with the church. Verses 18 to 19. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me. I think Paul's point is clear here. The word prayer or its synonym supplication is used six times in either a noun or verb form. But why does prayer matter? Perhaps most basically, prayer is admitting our need for God. It's asking for his help, attending to his presence in our lives. It's a way of accessing his power by asking God to do what we cannot. More significantly, prayer bonds us together as a community. You cannot pray for someone without eventually softening towards them. I dare you to try it. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, love your enemy and pray for him. It will change you over time. So maybe instead of us just praying about the conflict we're having with that family member who we may be spending time with over these holidays, we could start praying for them. You may not have a lot to say at first, but eventually your attitude towards them will change and quite possibly the relationship too. But we're not only to pray for others, we're to ask for prayer. And I don't just mean for Aunt Betty's toe. I mean the real challenges we're facing. This can be hard. Asking for prayer means asking for help. And asking for help means admitting weakness. And who likes that? But it is through that humility that the church grows. Eugene Peterson says, every time someone in the church says, pray for me, the church grows stronger. So how might we encourage prayer more here at City Church? Some of you may already have a set time to pray, and that is wonderful. Keep it up. Maybe you want to be intentional about listing different people you interface with and pray for them on a regular rotation. Maybe you want to go crazy and really pray for that enemy and see what happens. If you don't have a set time, maybe you could just start by adding prayer to what you are already doing. You can be in a conversation with someone at the carpool line or at work or on the phone and just quietly in your mind, ask God to give this person what they need. God wants our prayers integrated into all that we do, a pray without ceasing life. Peterson again writes, as we grow into maturity, prayer is the language that increasingly underlies and suffuses all our language. City Church, whatever you are facing right now, Paul reminds us with these verses, God has given us all the resources we need to be faithful to him. He's given us his power, his people, his word, and prayer. Each one can provide the protection we need against our vulnerabilities, but we must access them. And if we do, we will find ourselves still standing on that great day 
when Jesus returns. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh God, it is not a pleasant reality to be reminded of these forces at work. But it's true, and your truth sets us free. Open our eyes to what we cannot see, not just evil forces, but your spirit at work among us and in us. We ask now that you would help each one of us, Holy Spirit, translate what each one of us needs to take from this. How can we open these gifts you've given and use them more in our lives that we can stand firm in you and for your sake? In Jesus' name, amen.